The New Disruptors is brought to you this week by The Foghorn, a new short fiction magazine for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch. For $3.99 a month, you get four stories, 12 issues a year, from exciting Hollywood writers and from new voices. Go to thefoghornmagazine.com slash TND, like The New Disruptors, to start your seven-day free trial. This episode also brought to you by Media Temple. Media Temple's grid service has been the web hosting choice of more designers, developers, and creative professionals than any other platform. Grid web hosting now comes with SSDs, which load sites up to 50% faster. Listeners of The New Disruptors get 25% off their first month of hosting by visiting mediatemple.net and using the coupon code TND like The New Disruptors. And if you'd like to become a direct supporter of this podcast, visit patreon.com slash newdisruptors, where you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. Thanks this episode to our patrons, Bob Owen and Abraham Finberg. For a complete transcript of this episode, visit medium.com slash the-magazine and search on Kevin Kelly. Welcome to The New Disruptors. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of the magazine. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts, where you can also find shows like Queek. This week, I have with me Kevin Kelly, who you know because he's been on the internet as long as the internet has been something we've all been on. Kevin was involved with the Whole Earth Catalog, kind of the or internet something you've gotten in book form before we could actually all go online. He's currently the senior maverick at Wired Magazine, another thing that he helped get up and running. He's the author of What Technology Wants, and we're here today to talk about Cool Tools, which is a project that dates back a few years, but he's turned it from electrons into atoms, and, and we're going to talk about that today. Kevin, thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Well, I feel like I feel like you encapsulate so much of what people are trying to do today. You spent your whole career doing. I, can we talk for a bit about the whole Earth Catalog days? Because that's been so inspirational to people. I think I feel like the cycle's gone around again, and we're all rediscovering what drove that it, that's brought us here today. What what was the the spirit like when you were working on putting that together? So, in brief, the whole Earth Catalog was a. Um, a, a began life as a mail order catalog for things that you could buy by mail and that were supposed to be useful to the young people at that time who were trying to restart civilization. They were kind of moving to the country, doing homesteading, uh, reinventing how to grow their own food, build their own homes. Or they were living in cities, kind of dropping out of the traditional career and starting their own small businesses. And all these things were things that were not trained for in school. And so um, they needed tools. They needed some kind of information to help them um, learn how to do these things. And the catalog, which was printed on newsprint cheaply and sent out, was that thing. And the interesting thing about it was was that it was written by the users, by the readers themselves. Well, people sent in all this, all the descriptions of products and so forth. Those came in to uh, to the editors. 
Yes, and it was a fantastic example of user-generated content uh, 50 years ago. <laughs> and um, what happened was the readers would say, well, re read a tool that was recommended and decide that, in fact, um, this was um, not the best thing that they wanted to um, or had a better recommendation. And they would write in and say, this is even a better tool. So that was the way that the catalog grew over time. That's a, and that's a fascinating time. I mean, we'll talk about sort of modern printing too, because things are once again um, all different in how we make books. Um, but back then, if I remember the the era, that would have been um, it would have been easier than ever before to uh, to produce something like this. That it wasn't uh, some of the tools that used to be in the hands only of people with very expensive capital infrastructure that had changed and made it possible to produce something like this. Yeah, it's true that. Um... The catalog was one of the first examples of indie self-publishing. Just merely producing a book, say, in the up to the 1950s and 60s, required a very large company and lots of resources and expensive equipment. One of the reasons why Stuart Brand, who was the founder of this, could actually produce this bookish magazine thing on his own was that there were several bits of technology that were recently um, released and made it possible. And one was something called the IBM Selectric typewriter, which if you see it now, it's actually kind of a glorious ingenious thing because it, instead of having um, those uh, kind of uh, keys, like a, like a piano key on a lever strike each letter on a page, there was a, there was a ball, a spherical ball, and you could change fonts by changing the ball. And, um, they also had a, had a kind of a computer memory inside. And so you could actually justify type, meaning, you know, space it out to make it look like a book by typing it once and then having it uh, reprocess it. And um, internally it would set type. So this was a way to set type from kind of a typewriter. And then the second invention was a Polaroid camera, mm. which allowed you to do half tones um, by yourself without a elaborate darkroom and other equipment. So it was possible to lay out a book using wax and glue and cut, literally cutting and pasting things and, and, and several thousand dollars worth of equipment. You could do what used to require, you know, highly trained craftspeople to do. And um, that kind of do-it-yourself version and then having it cheaply printed on newsprint was the new technology that allow kind of a small group of people to put out a publication and to bypass New York City and mail it directly to your readers. And this was all brand new. It's so funny how that sounds. I was born in 1968, which I think was the first year of the whole Earth. Catalog. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, and I, uh, I'm just, I'm just young and old enough to have been caught in that transition. I used to do wax layout of typeset stuff. And I remember my mom typing when I was a kid, like at, you know, college community classes, mm -hmm. she took uh, on a Selectric and so forth. And I saw the whole transition happen, but it's funny to think how recent that was because, yeah, because a few years before that, right, the infrastructure, so forth. So the, the technology freed people up to take what was in their heads and stick it on paper and get it distributed widely in a, in an efficient 
way to people who wanted it in large numbers. That's, mm-hmm. that's, I, I don't think I'd heard it described quite like that at that point. That's, that's terrific. So everything, it's, it's all a great circle. It all comes back. Right, right. So it, it all comes back. And then because of, um, this ability to uh, print, um, uh, do it yourself, it also increased the speed. And mm-hmm. so because of the speed, it was possible to do user generated content and keep updating it, make multiple versions of it, which came out almost uh, twice a year. So the speed of publishing was for the first time much faster. And again, if you know anything about New York, uh, publishing is still very glacial, but this self-publishing was very fast and it allowed it to kind of have internet growth. So within a matter of a decade, there were millions of copies of this book sold in multiple versions, all of it primarily generated by the users. If you were to go back and look at some of this material, which I have done very frequently, and you're reading it, and it's very, very familiar because it is in the voice of the bloggers and the you know the, the people who are enthusiast amateurs and obsessive. They are... That is the voice that that you hear, and that was so rare um, at that time because to get something published, it had to be you know refined, polished, it had to be writerly, literally, you know, literature, literate, and it was gone, you know, processed through the machine, um, and so you never heard that. There was really no other venue for this opinionated but informed obsessive enthusiasm and yet it was spilling in these pages and that's one of the things that made it so attractive at that time so it's driven by people things that you couldn't find in the rest of uh so you couldn't find people you couldn't find this as a uh, written elsewhere you couldn't find this sort of material but this is what was going on in the culture this is a way for the culture to express itself in a way that was happening in real life but people were able to then also disseminate among each other Exactly. There was occasion. I mean, part of the, the catalog was trying to do is to uncover and point you to and feature and and communicate those few, say, books or publications that that did have that voice, that did have that kind of useful best friend information. And again, you know, we forget about the era before there were large mega bookstores. There were many, many bookstores throughout. The country, but most of them were really lousy. I mean, they were small. They often tended to be populated with a very narrow range of books. And if you, you know, part of the joys of traveling was visiting bookstores because you'd uncover these little gems that nobody else in the world would know, that no other bookstore would be aware of. And um, so finding things was so, so difficult. And what the catalog was doing was rounding up all these you know, this great enthusiasm and putting it in one place and you could you could then not only meet other people's voices, but you, you could find, say, books and other things that had been kind of more highly evolved. And they were all together for the first time. And, and none of this information was available to you in any other way. There was simply no way to get. There was no internet. There was no big bookstores. And it was it was just a marvelous discovery that, and it was the beginning of what we see on the internet of like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize other people were interested in X. And that was the beginning. I, I, I have to pinch myself and remember those times because uh, I remember, you know, going to microfiche readers to find archives of newspapers or 
going to the library. I, I grew up in California for part of my childhood, and uh, the Fremont Public Library had a thousand phone books. So if you wanted to find an address for someplace in New York, you'd go there, you'd find the phone book, you'd look it up. That was the closest thing we had to, you know, the information around the world was you were lucky if your local public library before Proposition 13, I should say. Uh, that's when we that's when we got out of California. Uh, it had the resources to give that to you. But right, I mean, I, I remember even like uh, Utney Magazine in the early 1980s, I would study the back pages of Utney with the tiny ads, the interesting things that they were covering. I want to say I subscribed to a magazine service they had, or no, I guess you could order from them where you could get single copies of interesting low circulation magazines that you couldn't otherwise fine, but they had a place. There was one outfit that offered it, I think. So just trying to get different points of view was a struggle. And and what you're describing was a way to, to disseminate that so broadly that people could find the things they were looking for, that those points of view could be spread um, by giving people access to know where to get to them. Exactly. And so, so, so the whole earth catalogs in some ways was the web on newsprint (laughs) right it was it was doing all this magical stuff and then in fact um a lot of what we wanted to do we couldn't do on paper which was kind of you know keep things updated quickly and um, timely so when the web came along basically the whole earth catalogs died because the web was doing 95 percent of what the catalogs were doing and much more and so um it just, you know, the, 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 the air got sucked out of the catalogs. Um, it was, the internet was much, much, the web was much, much better in that respect. And yet there was 5% that was missing still. Mm-hmm. And it was that 5% that I kind of continued with the whole earth. I mean, excuse me, with the cool tools, uh, which was originally was a email newsletter and then was a blog and then eventually it made it into a book and it was that remaining five percent that i was trying to recover let's pause for a moment so i can tell you about the foghorn another of this week's sponsors the foghorn is a new short fiction magazine for the iphone ipad and ipod touch they publish four stories a month 12 issues a year and this includes pieces from exciting hollywood writers as well as new voices I want to thank these folks particularly because the Foghorn came in during our The Magazine, The Book Kickstarter campaign and helped us get over the top so that we could pay our writers again. And here's the thing. I like publications that consider the writers and readers as equal partners, where the readers are part of the experiment. They're part of what's going on. So The Foghorn is $3.99 a month. That's about a dollar a story for really wonderful short stories. You can go read previews on their site at thefoghornmagazine.com slash TND. But the flip side of that, too, is not only are you getting a great deal on the content, the the math these days lets them pay $1,000 for each published story, which is an incredibly good rate for the market. So they're supporting writers at the same time as they're giving a great experience to readers. They're also donating 5% of their net revenue to 826LA. This is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting students ages 6 to 18 with their creative and expository writing skills and to helping teachers inspire their students to write. The Foghorn is a number of things. It's going to be great reading. You should subscribe just for the reading, but you also get to know that you're helping writers achieve what they want in life, which is to make part of their career or all their career from writing. And you know, some of the proceeds are going to go to helping kids become better writers as well. So download their free app. They've got a special Valentine's Day issue that you can get just as this podcast airs. 
You get a seven-day free trial. Let them know that we sent you by going to thefoghornmagazine.com slash TND, like The New Disruptors, and then keep that subscription going to get great fiction and to make sure that these writers that you like get paid a good rate. Thanks again to The Foghorn for supporting the Kickstarter campaign. And now let's get back to the podcast. We just took a uh, break, folks. We had an unavoidable event occur, and so Kevin was kind enough to come back a few days later. So if you notice that we've forgotten things we talked about in the first few minutes, well, it's not amnesia. Uh, in the passage of radio time, a little time has passed. So, Kevin, thanks for coming back so we can finish our conversation. As always, it's a delight to be here. Thanks for your <laughs> questions. Thank you. We'll talk about all the Skype problems another time. But uh, So we were just about to talk about the present. We talked about the past and how uh, Whole Earth Catalog had helped shape a lot of uh, things, both in culture and uh, how technology had shaped Whole Earth Catalog and how that had all sort of come together and move you forward. Somewhere in the middle of there, you helped bring Wired into being the magazine and got exposed on a continuous basis to all of the new technology coming out for both electronic publishing and publishing in print as well. Now, I know you've had the 2000s were sort of a totally different period for, for you than, than the 1990s, uh, but, but you came out of it with this new site uh, called Cool Tools that it really harkens backwards and forwards at the same time. What was the point of starting Cool Tools? Did you run out of index cards and you needed to, to share what was going on? It was almost like that. Uh, uh, you know, the original vision of the Whole Earth Catalog was actually something that was on index cards, and it was supposed to be a service rather than a product, somewhere where you would call in, like on a phone, and say, what's the best uh, tool for you know, moving heavy objects or whatever it was that someone wanted. That never came to be. It was mostly just a, um ongoing periodical that was user generated but when it died because the web came along and did everything better the web was sort of like cards in fact we did a version of the whole earth catalog on hypercard when apple was trying to sell cd-roms they didn't have any cd-roms to sell on their (laughs) cd-rom driver so they financed steve jobs actually financed a electronic version of the whole earth catalog that was on hypercards which was the first consumer version of hypertext and we had the largest hypercard deck in the world which was the whole earth catalog hypertext and that means basically it's the web except it wasn't on a web online it was a web on a cd-rom so it was a little closed universe but it was great because everything was available you didn't need a connection you just had a click and it was all on the cd-rom and it would just pull it up exactly and it was all on carts it was all on little carts mm-hmm. unfortunately the the cd-rom players never went very far for apple and so very few people even knew about um the existence of this electronic whole earth catalog but when that died it seemed to me that the large version of it was was gone but in fact the compulsion to recommend and share really cool stuff with my friends didn't cease and so i kept up a email list and then when i encountered something that i loved i would recommend it to my friends and they would say and i would do this on kind of like on a weekly basis one week or a couple a week I would send out and the friends would say can you send can you send it you know your little email thing to my friend and I said well yes I can but under one condition they have to recommend a tool you have to recommend a tool to get on the list and that was the beginning of this sort of user generated 
aspect of the mail list. So everything on the list was actually being contributed by new people being added to the list. And eventually, somewhere around 2003, when blogs came onto the scene, and actually I was first alerted to them by Mark Fernfelder, who you know, wrote to me and said, do you know about a blog? These are really cool. And um, I don't know what I want to do with it, but I want to do something. And he actually wrote an article about them that was rejected by all the magazines. No one thought it was important. And I actually ran it in, in Whole Earth, a special issue that I did in my Cool Tools a special issue. So I decided that this thing really belonged um, out in the public on a blog. So in 2003, I started um, moving, I moved the material onto the blog and did a one, a every weekday, I added a recommended tool. And um, that's been going uninterrupted since. And that's the origins of the Cool Tools website. It's interesting because the user-generated part, you know, you find that people have, some people have one song in them, some people have one story, but everybody's got some cool tool that they want to share, even if they aren't, you know, a journalist or a researcher and they find, you know, 50 of them a day for you. That was a very interesting way to start it, to say, okay, tell me your cool tool. You don't have to give me 50. Give me one. <laughs> you join the list. Right. There's some, yeah, you just said everybody has at least one thing that they're infatuated with or that they, you know, wouldn't would miss on an, uh, without taking to a desert island or they would want um, to have in their you know, household if they had none others. And so that, that one thing was what propelled this forward. And still to this day, most of the cool tools that are recommended are usually from people who this is their first one that they've recommended. And that kind of variety and diversity is actually what makes this collection kind of interesting because there are some very good sites um, out there and particularly like the wire cutter that can make really great recommendations, but on a very fairly narrow spectrum of stuff like, you know, big screen TVs or the latest uh, handheld or something like that. But the, the kind of the, the, the treasure, the, the, the wonder of cool tools is that anything that, that is really useful could be a cool tool. So people will, Write in with you know the best pool cleaner or um, you know the, the the best thing to use to take nuts off of a stuck rusted bolt, things that you just you know would never assign anybody to to, to uncover. They have they have to be kind of volunteered, and that ha- that energy of being a catalog of possibilities, a catalog of things that you never even knew existed, is really one of the treasures of the site. Well, the way you describe it, it's almost kind of a variant of the of the wiki idea, isn't it? Although you're the editor, I mean, you were making uh, editorial decisions about what to include, uh, you know, to some extent, because it sounds like you were very inclusive of what was coming in. But it's that notion that that Wikipedia's power and maybe it's Achilles' heel is that there are a million subject matter experts, and you need to capture some part of that and have them bring their expertise into that fold and share it. So for you. This wasn't a free-for-all. You wanted to have the editorial side, but you also got the benefit of that sort of citizen tool recommender uh, type of person. Yes. It, you know, it, it has a bit of a wiki tool aspect to it. But you're right in the sense that I think that the true power of, we'll call it publishing or media, is this combination of the, the diversity and the unexpected um, power of the bottom 
harnessed with that curation at the top. And I've actually, this was an argument and a kind of a belief that I've had for a long time, even when Wired was beginning, when we were kind of trying to, we among many other people, trying to figure out what, what, what the sort of natural form of online web publishing wanted to be. And, um, uh, you know, my good friend Howard Rangel, we hired to do the Hotwired, the, the online side of Wired. And he was very much, you know, a total kind of like from the bottom up crowdsource version. And I was a lot more, no, I think, I think we want some, <laughs> we want some editorial in there. And finding that, that sweet spot where you can harness both the immense energy and intelligence of the crowd with the refined intelligence and direction of a strong editor requires, you know, it, it requires a lot of, of tuning and uh, revision and evolution to, to get to. And, uh, but I think that is really the, uh, the right recipe for this messy media, which is not entirely bottom-up Wikipedia style and not the strong, you know, uh, you know, the Time magazine um, from the top, but something that's a combination of both. And Cool Tools was that um, a, a little bit in the sense that readers submitted reviews. There was actually a lot more of revision going on behind the scenes um, with the editor like me saying, I don't understand that, I don't believe that, you need to clarify that, what about over here? And so the end result is a paragraph that looks like someone just sort of dashed off, but in fact has been very, very curated, highly highly evolved in the sense of it gone through many, many revisions to try to anticipate the kind of questions that a reader might have. And, and that, I think, that works, where you, you, you harness both sides of the equation. There's that uh, challenge between editing in public and editing in private. And right. Wikipedia and the wikis are all, let's edit in public right. because we'll share the knowledge gained. But there's the thing from the decades that you've been involved in writing and editing people, you already have gained the knowledge necessary to know what people uh, understand and it seems like you want to apply that directly instead of um, having the readers go through it with you. I think it, a lot of that, whether it's public or private, depends on the use. I think the when you ha want to have something kind of be an authority and withstand scrutiny, then I think having it in public is, is a virtue. Again, referring to another site that does a lot that Cool Tools does, Wirecutter, um, what's interesting to me is that they do a lot of research, almost sometimes – Cool Tools will do almost as re as much research, but the Wirecutter will show their work. They'll 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 basically log all the all the research that they've done on it, and they make it public. So that research may be done by other sites, but they haven't made it public. So they're kind of doing the research in public, not just editing it. And I think that can be valuable. At the same time, the the disadvantage is that you have to kind of read through, you know, these long, long <laughs> stuff. And all you really want to have is just that kind of paragraph like, well, just tell me what it is. I, you know, yeah, I trust you by now. Just, just give me the, the you know, the, the summary. And I think that's sort of what Cool Tools has done is, um, 
it's it's like it's your best friend. It's like you having a really good friend, and you say, just you know, tell me what the best uh, satellite tell its phone is. I don't, you know, I mean, you've done all the work. Don't give me the whole thing. Just tell me which one I want to buy, and I'll trust you because I know in the past you've been more you've been reliable. And I think both of those functions or both of those modes are valid. It depends sort of on what, you know. What's 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 at stake? If it's just a, a re- cool recommendation, you don't need to have all the evidence. If it's the canonical article on the subject, then you want to have all the evidence and you like to see what the editing log looks like. Let me pause for a moment so I can tell you about one of our sponsors this week, lynda.com. That's Linda with a Y. Lynda.com is the place you go for high-quality engaging video training. And what does that mean? Well, if you're listening to this show, you're probably one of those people who is either already involved in something new and fresh and challenging, or you're trying to get involved in that. That usually requires new skills. Linda has it all. They've got over 2,000 videos already online. They're putting up new ones every day, and it's just $25 a month to get unlimited access to their entire course library. That's a very low rate when you're trying to make a change in your life. And part of what this show is about is trying to help people figure out how to get over the hump. And you can learn new things in a lot of different ways. Some people do best with reading, but I think a lot of us do better with the engagement of watching someone take us through something. We want to hear the human voice, see the human face. And you also want it to be produced really well because it's hard to watch low quality video and the standards have been set very high now. So at lynda.com, they're doing excellent production. They have the best people in the field and there's so much to go through. So if you're working on honing business skills, you can learn about time management fundamentals or how to establish a personal brand. It's important to figure out how to get your name out there in an effective way. If you're trying to produce a book, as I It's just the middle of, and you need to tune up on InDesign. They've got dozens of videos on InDesign. Anything you need, you're going to find there. Excel, Photoshop, Dreamweaver, WordPress, business relationships, photography, podcasting. Who needs to learn about podcasting? Well, maybe I should go hone my own skills in that regard. We've got a special thing we've arranged with lynda.com. Visit lynda.com slash TND, like The New Disruptors, and you get a seven-day free trial with access to everything. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash T-N-D. And now back to the podcast. I wonder if there's a, a difference there, too, between the, like the fast web and the slow web. And I, I know you're a real proponent. It's like the slow food movement mm. of the of the slower, the thoughtful, mm. contemplative, evaluative web. And I almost think this doesn't – I know Marshall McLuhan's hot and cold media is not doesn't really apply here, but it's mm. that there's maybe a – a dichotomy between the web that zooms by so fast you can't even read it, which was what a lot of the gadget sites were when they launched in the early mm-hmm. 2000s. And, and interestingly, Brian Lamb, who's behind Wirecutter and Sweet Home and the related mm-hmm. sites, he was an early Gizmodo editor. And then you have this emerging slow web that I really – I kind of love it more even than some of the original web, like Cool Tools, like Wirecutter, like a lot of sites that now are saying let's take the – and this is – I'm talking products, I guess, but it happens in news too where it's – uh, like long-form uh, nonfiction coming back into vogue. It's let's take the time to do the iceberg worth of work under the water and expose the tip. And maybe we tell you about the iceberg too, but the tip of the iceberg is the thing that we're we're presenting. Are you seeing that a slow emergence again or maybe a new emergence of a slow web, contemplative web? Um, I, 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 I had not thought of it in those terms, but I like, I like that distinction because I think it is true. And part of it has to do with uh, one of the measurements or metrics would be how often are you making posts? The thing about cool tools is we make one post a day 
and um, you know, Wirecutter probably is is maybe even less than that, versus you know, a Gizmodo or Engadget, which is you know they have some quota about the numbers of things they have to post per day. What I always found interesting was uh, maybe about five years ago, I did a um, a reader survey. I mean, I was really curious about like who in the world is reading um, cool tools. And I asked them how often they come to the site. And I was so surprised because there was like, I don't know, 30% of the people who were coming more than once a day. And that just like baffled me because it was like there's only one new thing a day and it has never been more. And I think what it was is they were going back for other stuff into the archives. Um or else... Well, this is yeah, this is part of the utility of this slower approach too. Right. Is that your archives are useful; they're right. not burned up news, right. not perishable stuff that's gone up in flames. Exactly right, and I think that is this you know the, the, the vision that you have, the little picture of the iceberg, which is that a lot of the, the deeper stuff, the roots are there, and they're as valuable and as you know as significant as anything that shows up uh, uh, in, in above water. And so I think um, that. You know, th- this is a mode, but but what I would say is is that what we always get with technology is all the above, and so the fast web is not going to go anywhere. I mean, there's going to be more of it, but I think what we will see is more the the options, the more the options for going slower and deeper and taking that kind of long form. So while there'll still be those, you know, really frothy, mayfly, you know, accelerated (laughs) spin and churn, there will also, if you want it, you can go deep and long and slow. And I think that's, it's it's like an ecosystem. You 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 want to have those you know redwood trees as well as those little f- flittering mayflies. And, and the more variety in, of speeds and scale you have, the richer the ecosystem. And I think what, you know maybe the initial weedy part of the internet was these opportunistic stuff that were fast. But as it deepens into a, a woven fabric with more uh, sustainable, you know, modes, then, then we'll see the, the deeper, longer roots and the, the, you know, the bristle cones that take 5,000 years to grow. Oh, I love that too. Cause, and it makes sense because you, uh, we had to churn a lot in the early web, you were constantly churning and then a new browser technology would come out, a new server thing. Or, um, I remember, boy, some colleagues that I've interviewed on this show in the past where they helped subsidize me purchasing 16 megabytes of RAM in 1993 so we could run a larger mailing list, you know, and then, you know, I bought 16 gigabytes for $90 the other day. And I, I know everyone talks about the scale all the time, but that scale helped drive change. So just to keep up with it, you were sort of, um, you had to stay abreast of what things could do because people expected it. The, it was it was burning so fast. Everything was changing so fast. We were trying to fill that yeah, space. Yeah, exactly. And that is that is one of the, um, the consequences of the price for a lot of the high-tech stuff, which is this mm-hmm. acceleration. But in fact, in Cool Tools, I have made a deliberate um, a focus, a deliberate choice to focus on Things that aren't just electronic, that that, mm-hmm. that 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 tools that won't go obsolete within a matter of weeks, that you know that you could come back to in a year or two, or more, and still find them useful. And so, the, and there is a lot of the world. Most of the technology in the world that surrounds you and me is actually old technology. You know, like concrete and copper pipes and window glass it's ancient technology and it still works and there's still you still have tools to work with it 
Um, and, and that, in fact, the, the majority of the technology that surrounds you is actually old. Is the, that, that layer of, of the new stuff is actually very thin. And yet it, you know, it, 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 it calls attention to itself a lot more than the old. But in fact, the old actually dominates our, our world. And so part of Cool Tools was to try and focus on the bulk of technology in our lives, which is not um, Internet stuff and to say you know there's a lot more going on in your world than just you know what happens in your browser yeah we should talk about the full circle aspect of this too as i'm sitting here with this giant thank you for sending me a copy of this book this giant cool tools book beautifully designed lavishly illustrated printed on nice thin but opaque paper so it's nice to hold it's going to last a while this is not newsprint but it's not you know it's not printed on um heavy uh you know fiction book stock and uh the thing is enormous what is it? it's it's 11 inches by 14, 13 14. 14 yeah yeah so it's this huge thing and it's a coffee table book and every page i mean it could t it would take me a year to read this yep. book if i read it yeah it does it, w it would and um there's several lots of things to say about that one is Again, that was possible because it was user-generated content over over several years. Although I went back and you know revised and uh, re-edited everything, um, and but but the, the actual dynamics of making the book was that um, it was possible because a lot of it was crowdsourced. It was it was we went I went to Elance, which is a cool tool that I recommend. Um, as a way of leveraging, you know, my own individual power. So this is a self-published thing. There's there's no big staff. And part of it was done by the fact that, that I could very easily, as an individual, crowdsource out extra work in parallel. And the, the advantage of crowdsourcing through Elance, which harnesses, you know, the, the capabilities and the professionalism of one million freelancers around the world, is part um, it, it, it's competitive pricing, but mostly it's speed. Mm -hmm. So um, the layout, I, I did the design of the book, but the layout was distributed among many people around the world, many designers around the world designing it in parallel. And those that were working the best would get more work. But we could do that and in, in, we could design the entire 500 pages and each, I mean, it's really designed. It's not just like a, a book. It's, it's very visual. Um, we could do that in, in, in a matter of weeks. We could proof it in a matter of hours. And so the design and other issues were all crowdsourced. And I think that um, is one of the ways in which this book was done with basically two – there were two people, me and my sister. Neither, neither one of us were full-time on this. When, mm -hmm. when I was doing this similar kind of book at Whole Earth Catalog, it was 30 people for a year. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that is the difference, what the technology has brought us, not just the technology of, you know, page design, which is incredibly much more efficient than the old ways, but even the technologies of and tools of crowdsourcing and other ways of managing work, uh, you know, using Dropbox and other kind of stuff like that. These are all tools that have really made it possible for one person to basically to do the work of at least 15 other people. This is so fantastic. I think I don't I don't think I knew that part of the story uh, as well because I've heard you talk about the book and I've read a bit and I've read the introduction but I don't think I understood the impact. I mean this was 
I mean, talk about another full circle thing, right, is that the um, Amazon's Mechanical Turk, when it was introduced several years ago, it was supposed to be a way to turn people into cogs in the computer, maybe in the best or worst way. And it has a lot of issues and management stuff. But it, you know, I've used it. I've interviewed people who've done large-scale projects with it. And Mechanical Turk, any problem that can be well reduced to a series of certain kinds of very small atoms of steps mm-hmm. are really good. Like I wanted to get a bunch of addresses to mail out uh, books. This is a typical thing, right? I'm sending out a book for promotional purposes. Like I would have cool tools. I want to send this out to a bunch of people and I can't get all their addresses and they're all at companies. So I take a spreadsheet. I upload it. I divide it up. I have multiple people do the same thing and I'm paying them three cents each or whatever and they all go out to websites. They collect it. I get a spreadsheet and if you're lucky and you've designed it right, which I did not the first time. So I spent a few dollars extra. You spend a handful of dollars. You distribute a tiny amount of money to other people. But but Mechanical Turk is about these sort of tiny bits of almost not drudge work, but they're like harnessing very specific, like a pattern recognition mm-hmm. capability of someone. Look at these two images and give me three keywords mm-hmm. and you're done and you get two cents or a penny or whatever. Right, right. In your case, the Elance brings it up like a whole yeah. – It's it's – we have all of these very human abilities, which like layout is mm-hmm. a human thing. There are automatic layout systems and none, the best of them only work with very specific kinds of right, material. Right. So you turn the whole – the Elance turns the whole world and these other kinds of freelance networks. It gives you a mechanical Turk but for much higher level skills. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean in the end, I, I probably redesigned you know at least 90 percent of the pages. But I was working at such a – I mean the, 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 they were delivered at such a stage that it was actually possible for me to refine them. Uh, um, and so we could, we could, you know, we were generating, I forget how many pages a day from all the, the freelancers and it was really, and, and they were first class. I mean, they were, they were really great. Um, and yeah, this is a 472 page, well, 474, yeah. including the covers, right? It's a huge, it's a huge, it's a huge book. And huge book. just thinking about, you know, trying to d- design each of these pages, which is each one's custom design. I mean, that's the, that was the point, but we, we used a uh, freelance, like, okay. So all the images or products, there's a thousand, 500 different images. We had all, we removed the backgrounds from, you know, the, the product shots from the web. We removed the backgrounds. That was all done through crowdsourcing on Elance. And it was done very quickly for very little money because there were people in Indonesia or Turkey, whoever, who were happy to have some job like that. And they were incredibly fast and good at it because that's that's what they do. I mean, there are people in India who they have whole businesses around just removing backgrounds. And so you would not know that, but once you bid you realize that <laughs> that these guys are so fast and good it's 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 shocking and they're they're professional in that sense they're they're you know they're photoshop jockeys who do this day and night and they can really do it and so that's the power like you know that that's the power of this web of uh, the international global web which is um being able to harness that just as an individual and I tell people, you know, I mean, it's not just talking more about Elance. It's not just uh, it's like uh, doing legal work. It's like doing uh, uh, brochures, courses, programming. It's an, almost anything you can imagine. That if you can specify it, as you were saying, like for Mechanical Turk, if you can specify a job, and that's the real art as the manager is mm-hmm. specifying it so that it's very clear and you can break it down and you have these benchmarks. If you're able to do that, um, you're able to basically distribute that that work around the world. That's fantastic. This is just another example of things like TaskRabbit yeah. and uh, um, what was I what was thinking of is um, uh, just so many ways you can get people's efforts in and they can be compensated 
I mean, they become there's a marketplace. It's there's an arbitrage yeah. there, right? They need to charge something that's worth it for their yeah, time. Exactly. Uh, but they're also now either in a market where uh, everybody's skills are fungible. And so we get the first world advantage of right. um, whatever the book sells for. You can pay people a relatively small amount in our, you know, in our ecosystem, but it's, it can be a large amount in theirs. So the, it doesn't disadvantage them by being able to compete globally. Well, actually, in, in fact, a lot of the designers who worked in this worked in the or were U.S. workers. And so it's, mm. it's, it's not – I mean, the, the, as I said, the prices are competitive. It's not like you were kind of doing sweat. Uh, sweat house labor mm-hmm. where you're actually just really um, just milking. No, it's there, there, it's there's a it's competitive, but not necessarily the cheapest. And and a lot of the the freelancers may actually be be in the U.S. Um, but what you're getting is is that you um, are also they they work with an escrow uh, procedure. So in fact, the money is being held in escrow, so that you're both the buyer, the purchaser, and the worker are being protected until the work is delivered satisfactory, which is another great invention. And so, um, uh, but what it is is doing is is really um, it's arbitrage. It's it's matching the needs of one person with the abilities of the other in a very low friction way. And I think that is what really it it comes forward is is that sometimes you don't need necessarily uh, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, the design power, you want something a lot more modest. And this is a way to kind of connect with that person very directly, very quickly within a matter of hours. And I think that's really the beauty of this system. Well, I keep hearing about just so many things like this Alibaba for components or manufacturing. Right. Uh, it gives you access to the entire Chinese manufacturing right. ecosystem. Right. Or um, uh, I've forgotten the name of the site. I'll put it in the show notes that uh, lets gives you access to all these uh, artists and illustrators. Well, there's a bunch of them, De- but that gives you Deviant, access to them. DeviantArt is, is one where we actually – okay, so I'm doing another book, which is a um, Kickstarter-funded graphic novel, um, which um, – I was involved in the creation and the story, but we needed artists to, um, you know, draw it, letter it, color it. And we went to DeviantArt, and it's the same kind of a story where um, we can actually use more than one artist if we need to. And you're finding people all over the world, and you're trying to make a match with the, the style that you're looking for, the, the, the amount of money that you have, the amount of time it's going to take. There's lots of different variables. And you can look through these and... Um, Again, you're getting professional quality, even though they may not have been published very much. Um, you you have the entire you know the entire world is is the potential pool from which you can draw from, and it's very powerful. And then to me, the thing about it is is that these are things that corporations used to you, you would think about a corporation doing, you know. Mm-hmm. But now an individual, I make you at home, can now leverage your abilities. And it's not so much that you're kind of like crowdsourcing as much as it is that you are um, being able to collaborate with the right people anywhere in the world. And, and it's that kind of it's, – it's that ability of kind of micro-collaboration where you don't have to mm. hire them. It's like a task project-oriented collaboration of great potential. And so this idea of like, you know, temporary alliances and collaboration just for this duration of what you need and then you move on. Yeah. That is extremely powerful. And, you know, 
it means that, that you, you know, if you want to do something and you don't know how to program or you want to do something, you don't have any, you need a lawyer, but you don't want to hire a lawyer. You just want to kind of like, you know, I just need like five minutes of, <laughs> of help right here. To, and, and then you're done. Okay, I can pay that. And so this is kind of like an unbundling. It's a little bit of like unbundling the skills of the world and you make them accessible in, in this kind of small units uh, and that you can kind of recombine in order to get something done, you as an individual. And I think it's, it's just kind of like you, you suddenly have – like you're collaborating, but you're, this is kind of like nano-collaboration unit. The unit is nano bits, and you can kind of just do things much faster and bigger than you'd ever imagined before. This is a really fascinating thing because it ties in – well, it ties in at all ends of the trend. So Mechanical Turk is you may be arbitraging for eight seconds of someone's time. And on a, a freelance site mm-hmm. uh, like Elancer or any of the others, you might be contracting for a week or a month of someone's time or or mm-hmm. 10 minutes to do something. But I, I wanted to pivot away for a second. Yeah. There's something that's parallel this will, and then come back to the printing production part of this is um, you wrote an essay in, in, the, in our first part of our talk. I mentioned in passing the 1,000 True Fans essay, which um, is I think every other episode I cite in here because um, it's it's kind of a, a flag that people wave. Uh, and I, as you talk about micro collaboration, I realize, oh, right, this is a piece of what makes the thousand true fans thesis is, is is kind of about how you do something on your own, how you assemble, how you have an audience that lets you freeze you to do certain kinds of things. But I realize micro collaboration is part of it. Almost everyone I've spoken to on this program has only been able to take a career, whether it's art, music, design, even a manufacturing company, in their own hands because of the modern economy has let them buy tiny bits of resources yeah. and, and even collaborative consumption. You know, I, the fact that I can go to a different city and there's Zipcar available and uh, a car to go, or I could use relay rides and get into someone else's car, or I can use Lyft and someone driving their own car can drive me around. All of these things take all of my capital costs and my committed capital down so far that I could focus more on these things. Have you seen, is there is there a bridge between a thousand true fans and this kind of micro collaboration that, that makes it maybe more possible for people to engage in this kind of thing. It's it's a brilliant idea they never thought about, but just to kind of reintroduce the idea for those who may not have heard mm-hmm. a thousand true fans, the, the idea of was almost, it was theoretical and mathematical in a certain sense, which said that um, most creative people kind of, and including myself and others, dream for a, a hit. You 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 want to have a bestseller. You want to have a blockbuster. You want to you want to have a million fans. Uh, I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> and um, at, the, at the other end, you know, there is um, you know there's the a person who is kind of struggling along and doesn't doesn't have a um, very much of an audience at all. But to have a million fans, generally in the past, has required kind of a a lot of intermediate people from, you know, labels and studios and um, uh, book publishers. And um, uh, it occurred to me that, in fact, um, if you actually had direct contact and direct relationship with your fans and there was no middle people, that the the income you could get from, from them directly would reduce the number that you needed significantly. So if you had a thousand people who were your true fans meaning and by, by that i define them as people who would buy whatever it is that you produced any time mm-hmm. and would um you know would not only would not only buy the 
paperback, but would buy the hardcover and the <laughs> digital version as well. Yeah. Who would who would not only buy your CD, but would drive a hundred miles to, 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 when you were on tour. Th- those are your true fans. And if you had a thousand of them, and you could get like a hundred dollars from them a year for what you were producing, then you were. And, and you got directly, then you got $100,000 a year from only 1,000 true fans. Mm-hmm. And so this was the, the concept was this kind of this interesting middle place where you, you didn't need to have a million fans to actually survive or make a livelihood. You needed more than one fan, but you could do it with this interesting moderate number, which is an imaginable number. It, 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 it's hard to imagine a million fans, but you could imagine getting 1,000 people who would really follow you. And if you could and you had direct relationship to them and you got the money directly from them, then you could make a living, maybe not a fortune, but you could make a living with a thousand true fans. And so I like your idea of saying, well, that's sort of, um, it's it's kind of like, it's, it's like a, a nano bestseller or this kind of micro <laughs> yeah. celebrity. And and how that might fit in with this other di- kind of, 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 you know, micro collaboration, which is that maybe you can work with a thousand collaborators, but you're only, you're, you're only working with them for a short amount of time. And, and so the idea is, is that while we think well, this thousand true fans kind of worked as a solo, as you as an individual, because if there's more people, then obviously you need, you need to have higher numbers. If you're only trying to support you as a photographer, or you as a mm-hmm. songwriter, you, then a thousand works. But if you're if you're a band of seven, then you need seven times as many at least. But maybe maybe you can kind of also um, uh, increase your productivity as as in, with a thousand true fans by actually having a thousand nano collaborators. Well, I wondered about that because I, I don't think I thought about that in that context until you were just talking about that part of it because the, uh, the, the, the math for Thousand Shoes fans works. I mean, it really rely, it's a remarkably interesting number you picked. I mean, obviously, like, there's not a strict mathematical basis on it, but it's, but it's that thing. It's like a thousand times a number winds up being a pretty decent number in dollars for, right, right. for supporting oneself. And, uh, when I planned the Kickstarter for this book that, uh, that my publication, the magazine put out, I had in my head, I said, we need 1500 people to make the math work. And we got 1465 people. I don't know. I don't know how the unseen head of the market works. And, uh, the double clicks will be, uh, a musical act who will be future guests on this show. They're in the middle of a Kickstarter as we record this, and uh, they just passed a thousand, and they've almost hit. They've they've blown through their goals, and it's terrific. But there's that magic of a thousand. It seems uh, more. I don't. It's not real, but it's like well, then there's that's a that's a lot of people uh, to be involved. But everyone I've talked to who's involved in this current economy. I mean, you wrote this. Uh, before Kickstarter, about a year plus before mm-hmm. Kickstarter launched. And, and obviously you're building on a lot of kinds of crowdfunding things that mm-hmm. were more informal mm-hmm. or built into individual sites and lots of concepts. The the street performer model that Amanda Palmer cites, mm-hmm. for instance, mm-hmm. all the time too, which was how she literally got her start. So you're writing this at a, a historically interesting point before when it was clear things like this could happen, but all the mechanisms weren't in place. And then I watch it unfold and all the people I talked to were like, you know, well, we want it, we don't have to get CDs anymore because everyone has a music player because that happened starting in the you know early 2000s. So we don't have to distribute CDs, although we can make them now. Or we want to get books printed and we can use print on demand or offset or, um, you know, all these distribution mechanisms that before were limited to, uh, you know, Bandcamp for artists is a huge thing uh, to, uh, and SoundCloud, things like that, to, to facilitate distributing music mm-hmm. without any intermediary, but with full control. So mm-hmm. all of these mechanisms that 
would have required them to build systems or get in bed with an intermediator that would have taken most of the money. Now let them kind of work with a facilitator, mm-hmm. but at the same time, give them access to all the collaborators you're talking about as well. Yeah. I mean, I have like 100 people. This book I'm working on, I think there are literally 100. You, you, know, you know the scale from the thing you did, which is mm-hmm. much larger. But this is a no- book of nonfiction essays, most of which were already written and published. And there's still about 50 people I'm directly working on. This with and it's wonderful, and I'm getting five minutes of someone's time and and three days of another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I I, I think you're um, right. I ha- actually had not thought about um, the kind of median number of supporters in Kickstarter, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's on, if it's on the order of you know of a thousand, you know, t- t- ten to the third. So um, I, I think I, I we did a Kickstarter. Um, campaign for the graphic novel and you know it was i think we had total number of supporters of around 800 which is you know mm-hmm. close to, to the thousand that we're that we're talking about and i think um maybe it's not a thousand but maybe it's a hundred uh, collaborators it may be a, a a kind of a natural order <laughs> of things um in terms of being able to you know just just the kind of overhead costs of 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 you know Maintaining relationships is probably Dunbar's number. Oh, you're totally right. That's you right. Know, it's 125. It's, <laughs> I, I, I think it's probably you probably don't want any more nano collaborators than 125. Um, you can't deal with them for, for yeah, a given project. Right. You can't remember their names or who they are. <laughs> so, so I would suspect that that's probably a, a, a more natural um, mode, a resonant mode there. But that would be would be interesting to to look at. I mean. I, you know, I'm I'm always shocked at the number of credits that show on some of these big movies. Um, the you know, there's thousands of yeah. of individuals um, needed. But if you you know tallied up the number of people that could take a solo project um, and that would that you could um, amplify your own reach by by using these um, nano bits of help. I think, you know, yeah, 100 would probably be um, the most that you could probably handle. And it's a great ratio too because I think – I mean Kickstarter projects aren't all 50 grand. But I think there's this funny ratio when you get uh, a lot of – the sweet spot on average for a lot of Kickstarter projects is like 25 to $35 per person when you average out the high and low pledges. So in my project, for instance, we raised about $60,000 from almost 1,500 people, which is a very you know neat bit of <laughs> math to get there. And uh, and then that money is being mostly distributed out to you know uh, 50 or 75 people maybe. And some people are getting $50 mm-hmm. and some people are getting you know uh, like the printer is getting you know, $15,000 or something. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, – the printer itself, like I say, the printer is one entity and there's probably 200 people who work there and, mm-hmm. and 25 mm-hmm. of them will be involved in this. So it's this kind of, um, I feel like I'm a funnel. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like I'm an aggregator. I'm like, I am the person in the middle, as you were with your book, where you're sure, trying sure. to orchestrate things on both ends, money and people and expectations on one hand, flowing in, work and so forth coming out, and you have this product. So uh, that's where I want to circle back as we, as we finish to the, to your enormous and wonderful book is, so this is, it's not irony at all that your end goal was a book. It seems like a natural process, but getting a, book printed. I mean, you were just talking about all the production detail. Mm-hmm. And then you have to get an actual physical object created and distributed. Yeah. How did you start down that path? Because that's a hard... I mean, all the collaboration was mostly electronic. You only had a few people in person working with you. How did you start down the path to the, the atomic part of it? Yeah, yeah. No, making a, a, a very physical artifact is very different than making an ebook. 
um, and, and everyone can kind of understand the logic of you know self-publishing an ebook. It's 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 very straightforward, but this is much more like a maker thing. I mean, you, mm. cause we're making things with you know colored ink spread on you know dead tree flesh. <laughs> it's it's um, and and the the volume that we were talking about, like you know, right now I'm in the third printing, and there's two containers oh full God. of books being shipped across the Pacific and um, they have to make their way, you know, on trains. And so, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like moving heavy, heavy stuff, but here's, here is, here's, you know, here's the new economy right now, which is that even me as an individual, I can kind of command, I can wave my hand and command that, that to be happened in a certain sense. So, so that, with um, on-demand publishing and even there, there's there's a, a very interesting blurring between the, yes. the, the kind of Lulu and, and Lightning Source and Blurb, which have been made to print copies of one. And then they found out that, in fact, most people were ordering like, you know, 10 or 50 was actually a, a very common de- mm. denominator for, for books being printed on Blurb much to everybody's surprise. And they're now, all these on-demand technologies are now bleeding into higher and higher numbers. And the uh, what will happen in the next couple of years is going to be kind of an individual, uh, invisible feathering from uh, where you can order uh, uh, one copy on-demand or you can order 20,000 copies, which won't be on-demand, but the quality will be indistinguishable and from, from, from the one copy to the 20,000 copy. This is the holy grail. And this is every industry this eventually happens to, I think, if the industry reaches the right scale and complexity and digital technology has pushed that, right? Is that print on demand used to be like, you know, okay, xerography and you stuck, I've been involved in printing for decades and you'd stick a, you know, we had this thing in the late 1980s and it was some Xeroxing at the end. There was a kind of semi, you know, excellent for the day, but some kind of binding unit Mm -hmm. that would take the thing and, you know, combine it and stick, you know, and you'd get something, it looked like a book and it felt like a book, but it really didn't look. And then year after year, better, better, better. We've seen this in every industry that you get from, uh, you know, Steve, uh, just reading about someone critiquing Steve Ballmer as the head of Microsoft because he laughed at the first iPhone. And they said, Bill Gates did not laugh at the first Macintosh. <laughs> he said, how do we do this? The first iPhone or the first iPod were ridiculous. And then they ate the entire yeah. world. The print-on-demand thing, I'm hearing this more and more. I was even talking to silkscreen printer or T-shirt printers who are watching digital T-shirt printing. is still not good enough. It's not totally comparable. It's a different process. They are watching it like week after week almost right. get closer to silk screening, and we'll start to eat the bottom end of that market. Exactly. So right. Yeah. I mean, this is fascinating. So, so you know, we all were familiar with you know the the dot matrix, which when it came onto the scene, and everybody laughed at it. it was this mm-hmm. horrible quality? Anybody operating a four-color press would um, have just thought that this is a joke. And you the only advantage that Dot Matrix had was a single advantage, but it was you could make a copy of one. You could print one thing of it. Right. And you, but right. you could print it really bad. So, you know, you go to the four-color craftsmen, and they're just like, that is just a joke. But what, of course, happened is that inkjet, uh, Dot Matrix turned into Inkjet, which is the same thing. You're spraying ink on this thing as it moves across. And it got eventually so good that you could print color photographs that looked magnificent, but then still the four color press people looking right. at it and saying, 
you know, we have look how long it took, you know, it's expensive, blah, blah, blah. But what's <laughs> happened is they, um, the innovation, which was very inevitable, was instead of having this ink cartridge move back and across the paper, you just have a strip of of nozzles that don't move and you have the paper <laughs> moving under it so you have four or five strips of every, each one for each color and the and the web press underneath is moving really fast and it's you now have the speed and economy of uh web printing but it's basically it's dot matrix it's little tiny dots and um so it has now the advantage of both you can print one or as many as you want and at um, it, the scale of uh, economy, because the price, the problem used to be print on demand for a long time, and, and still to some extent is you print one and it costs X, you right. print ten and it costs ten X, you print a hundred and it's maybe a little less than a hundred X, and when you get up to five hundred, you really you switch to offset or some other kind of right. thing, and there's huge setup costs, but you go from five hundred to fifty thousand, like you know, in the printing of the book that I've got, every additional copy reduces your overhead cost by X percent. So offset is the natural shift. And what you're saying is that line of shifting yep. from print-on-demand to offset right. is getting bigger and bigger, right. which is exciting. Exactly. Because how many books do the 1,000 true fan argument right. – how many books do people need to print? You're talking about 50, 500, yeah. 1,000. Right, so 1,000 right. – if you can do that affordably, if you can hit print-on-demand 1,000 copies – uh, and not have to inventory right. all of them at once, too. Right. So you don't have to put all the money up front. And it's not that much more expensive than the right. quality. So, uh, Adam Coford, who's the uh, Ape Lad cartoonist, who does all the lolcat, uh, old-style, almost like crazy cat-style cartoons, he has this wonderful book. I ordered it. And I'm looking at the back, and it says printed like last week. <laughs> and I thought – and it, so it's black and white, yeah. beautiful cover. And I look at it, and I'm like, oh, this is POD. Yeah. I didn't realize this was print on demand. Yeah. But And if I didn't notice the printing date, that it, literally a week before I bought it, I wouldn't have realized right. it. So Blurb, which has made his uh, name printing photo. Photo books is going to offer basically this scalable version of printing, saying, mm. um, and, and they're going to guarantee that the that, that the printing matches for the, the one off, one on demand, or the or the thousand or the twenty thousand that that you won't be able to tell. Just the that book will match across whoever many you want. And so, um, if you want one, and you print a couple, and you say this is great. You know, I have friends, they want a thousand, we'll print a thousand exactly the same. And oh, uh, Amazon now wants it, it's a bestseller, we'll print more, and it'll just all, they'll all match. So you have this kind of uh, scale free uh, manufacturing. And this is all part of um, not just printing, but of course, 3D printing is mm-hmm. going in the same direction. And what this means basically for makers and people who like cool tools is, is that the. It's a little bit like internet kind of scaling where, yeah, you can you want to be able to make a website that works for one person and then if it works for – you know if people love it and you want to scale up, you want to be able to do that very easily without having to um, change the whole infrastructure that, you're, that you have started. And I think that's sort of what we're headed towards a little bit with physical things, which has been a real problem going from you know the prototype to – 50,000 of something or even a thousand of it, um, having the tools that allow that scaling to happen a little bit more invisibly. That's a wonderful notion that you just, yeah. And I've, I mean, I hear that story scale is the enemy of um, Kickstarters and, and, and uh, yeah. business success sometimes is right. As you go from uh, a friend of Dean Putney's, Dan Shapiro was a recent mm-hmm. guest on the show mm-hmm. about his uh, Robot Turtles game. And he was planning to make about a thousand and then uh, his Kickstarter was very successful. So suddenly he has to make 25,000 
copies, but he had went to a firm that could scale. It was printing a thousand, and that was affordable. And twenty five thousand was within their range. But if he needed to do a hundred thousand, he might have been pushing at the limits. But not being able, not having to set that dial right. before you start is it will be an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that you know the technology will allow us to do it. But and I think also the the, the economics and you know, things like. Kickstarter and other kind of crowdsource funders allow us to kind of explore those lower realms of a thousand that we've never had before. I mean, you know, nobody in in the right mind in, in the past would have ever, you know, even inquired about trying to produce something in in, in the level of the thousands. It's like that, that that's that was kind of like a you know no man's land. That was that was that was just empty of, of anybody you did a prototype and then you had some in the multi-thousands minimum to produce things but in fact I, I think this is actually a really key thing that I haven't really f- fully explored but you know if, if, if you hear if you ever heard the numbers of the uh, number of cars like sold in, in say in the US like a, mm-hmm. a, a particular model you know you say like well we you know GM or whatever it is or Ford they'll make like 30,000 of something, thirty thousand. Mm-hmm. That that'll be the total run of the cars, and you and it's like <laughs> that's you know that's that's like uh, that's in, that's in the range of a thousand true fans, so to speak. That's you you don't need to have that many to actually have a success, and I think that's what we're what we're working on right now is kind of exploring this hard middle. Mm-hmm. Which is making things successful in this kind of thousands and maybe even ten thousands of of a range, where you know if you can produce them and make them really good in quality, that you can have success at a thousand and ten thousands of something. This is a, a thousand true things, a thousand <laughs> right. true, thousand true duplicates. Well, it's funny. So it's it's uh, Dunbar's limit for collaborators. Yeah. Kickstarter and crowdfunding on one side, crowdsourcing right, on right, another, right, right. and then a thousand fans, and we make a thousand things. It's kind of a neat formula. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah although it probably is closer to 10,000 things. You know, a thousand That's right. 10,000 10, would be nice. A thousand is hard, it's hard to make yeah. money from yeah. unless you're selling Teslas, which right, are, right. is a fun startup to watch. But uh, well, so people can find this wonderful book. You know, I know you have a long association with the folks who run Boing Boing as well, and they're a directory of wonderful things. Well, this is a catalog of possibilities in your very lovely cover here designed by you I know that's one thing you didn't outsource you actually designed the cover right well actually I did a, oh. I did do a crowdsource version on 99 designs which I highly recommend I got almost a hundred designs I mean I was really floored by the quality mm. but none of them really really worked so in the end I did my own design I didn't do my artwork I found a graf- I was trolling through the web looking for images and I found a graffiti artist in Portland or something and I wrote to him and said you know I, I love your image can I use it for cover of my book and I paid him for yeah. for that but I did I did the d- design although I have to say that um, if I wasn't you know if I wasn't so inclined I would have used one of the designs I got from 99 design which by the way is run as a contest mm-hmm. and um, uh, the higher you were willing to pay, for the final design, the, the more the more submissions you will get, and I again I, I I was what was really remarkable and very invigorating is the variety of um, takes that you'll get 
on your so again instead of going out to one designer and hiring a designer first you kind of do it the other way around you say here's what i'm looking for here's my specs and you have a hundred people submit really crazy designs and and they're also feeding off of each other because as the designs are being posted you as the uh, bidder you as a uh, you know um buyer is you're you're giving feedback on what you like and don't like and then the new designs are coming being kind of generated off of that and so it's very powerful again another way to leverage a single person Mm -hmm. uh, and the power that you can have of these uh, micro collaborations iteration is expensive so if you can figure out a way to to have other people iterate with you then you get to these wonderful these wonderful results. Well, people can find this at kk.org. You got a domain very early, which was very good. Exactly. <laughs> to get those letters, slash cool tools, and they'll be in the show notes. Kevin, thank you so much for talking about the genesis and creation of this. I just think this is, um, you know, and I have to go spend the next year reading it, but uh, but that's a good task. Yeah, it's it's a book for anybody who wants to do things and how to make things and tells you, uh, you know, how to rent a bulldozer or choose a career. You know how to learn to swim or work at it home. It cleverly says, give a copy to a kid you know. I'm leaving right, this out right. on the coffee table so my six-year-old, nine-year-old have already been picking it up. But I really enjoyed being and discussing these kind of disruptions uh, in, in, in the way we do things with you, Glenn, and I really appreciate your, your interest in this. It's a pleasure. I just I thank you so much for sharing what you're doing because that's how we all learn, and it's, it's, uh, you've been doing that for a long time, and I really appreciate how much you're willing to do that with people. It's great. Well, thank you. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at v-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. (music) 